So there's this um, famous test. It's called uh, the marshmallow test or the marshmallow experiment. You probably you you may have seen it or heard of it, but it was this um, study on delayed gratification uh, done in 1972 by a psychologist named Walter Michel. Michel? Um, uh, he was a professor at uh, Stanford University. And so in this, stu- in this study, and people have duplicated this test a lot since then, but basically what they would do is they would get children aged like three and a half to five and a half. And they would put them in a room and they would put them with this, the person conducting the test. And they would offer, they would give them one marshmallow. They would essentially say, and it was a marshmallow or they got to choose like a marshmallow or a pretzel stick. And they had this choice of whether they could eat it immediately or the person conducting the test would leave and they would promise them before they left and they would make sure all the kids understood that they could either eat the marshmallow now or if they waited, if they were able to wait until the person came back, then they would get two marshmallows. Right now, um, during this time, the, the researcher left the room about 15 minutes, returned. And um, what they found was there was a correlation between the kids who were able to wait and essentially success in different factors. So they actually tracked these kids for many years. They tracked them for some of them like, um, I think like 40 years of their lives. So they kept in touch with them, and they found that the children who were willing to delay gratification to receive the second marshmallow, they ended up having higher SAT scores. They had lower levels of, suf- of substance abuse. They had lower likelihood of obesity. They actually checked like their BMI. Uh, better responses to stress, better social skills, as reported by their parents, generally better scores and ranges of other life measures. In other words, this, uh, and it was more than just one experiment. They conducted several experiments. They changed the sample sizes. And this series of experiments proved that the ability to delay gratification was critical for success in life. It was actually one of the most critical factors that they found. And a lot of other tests have have been conducted since then But the principle was simple. Um, If you can delay gratification, then you can get a greater reward. Now, I find this really interesting because it's very similar to the biblical promise of faith. If we are able to sacrifice something small in the short term, we will reap a much greater reward in the long term. And this is really what the Bible often talks about is the life of faith. It is this idea that you are, instead of chasing after everything that you think is going to make you essentially happy immediately, if you're able to trust in God, if you're able to listen to his promises and follow that, then we are able to reap a much greater reward down the line And I think many of us know that. And even this study, like there have been other studies and people tried to refute it and this and that. But ultimately, the basic idea that it's better or you can receive a greater reward if you're able to delay gratification, I think most of us understand the basic 
logic behind that behind that idea, right? Whether it's whatever it is, whether you know it has to do with discipline or it has to do with um, like you know eating right or working out or you know saving money, whatever these kinds of things. I think we understand the basic idea. The question is, why do we have such a hard time doing it? It seems like it's very difficult for us to do, particularly, and we can exhibit these different disciplines in in certain areas of our lives, but particularly when it comes to God, when it comes to kind of the arena of spirituality or faith or Christianity. Now, what we're going to talk about today is, I hope, will help us to lean into this idea of, we're really just going to explore what does it mean to live a life of faith? What does it actually look like to live a life of faith? And how, how can we, despite kind of all the distractions in our lives, all the things that are telling us contrary, how can we step into that kind of life? And so that's what we're going to look at today. So if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to uh, Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And um, we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to read all the way through verse 16 today, but we'll take it kind of um, one piece at a time. So this is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, and it says this. This is God's word. And it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Okay, now we're going to pause here for just a second. We're going to see three points today about faith. The first point is this. I'll just give it to you now. Living by faith is trusting. And what I mean by trusting is acting as if. And I'm just going to use that term from now on instead of the word trusting because when we think about trusting or faith or believing, sometimes we take that thing out of, like, the real world. It's something that exists just in our head, right? And that's not really what faith is, and we're going to see kind of from what's presented here that that is not really faith. Just intellectual assent is not faith. So I'm just going to use acting as if. Okay, so living by faith is acting as if a pre-existent, all-powerful creator God exists. Living by faith is acting as if a pre-existent, all-powerful creator God exists. Now, quickly, he defines faith here. He says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It sounds cool. It doesn't mean anything really crazy. It's basically what faith is. It is the conviction of something that you cannot see. You cannot necessarily, tangibly prove. That's what faith is. If there is something that can be proven, you don't really need faith to to pursue it or believe in it or follow it, right? Uh, Now, he says, For by it the people of old received their commendation. We're going to talk about that in a second. And then verse 3, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So there's two things there being said. One, God created everything out of nothing, right? Because what is made... What came out of things that were not visible, meaning didn't exist, is really the implication, right? Sometimes we call that ex nihilo creation, 
right, that God created, that's just Latin for out of nothing. God created out of nothing. Now, that idea alone is pretty crazy when you think about it. It's one of those things we don't, it's kind of like whatever to us. Like if you've been in church for any period of time or if you've learned about God from when you were young, you just think like, oh, yeah, God created out of nothing. Think about that idea. There was nothing, and then God made everything that exists. Now, that alone is, is crazy. But secondly, it says, how did God create everything out of nothing? What does it say there? The universe was created by the word of God. It says, the universe was created by the word of God. How did God create everything out of nothing? He did so by his word. Now, I'm not going to go on too long of a diatribe because I've talked about, I talk about the word of God all the time, right? But the emphasis on the power of God's word is seen throughout the Bible. And it's one of those things where the more you read the Bible, the more you see it. The more you realize it's everywhere. Right? Like Genesis 1, how does God create the universe? He speaks. He says, let there be light. It just happens. Right? John 1 says, in the beginning was... Oh, help me out, guys. Come on. (laughs) Come on. The Word, right? Yeah. In the beginning, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That Word, the Word, the Word, right? The term, the Greek term, logos, right, refers to Jesus. We learn later in that passage. Why use the term Word in reference to Jesus? You could say anything, right? But the word has particular meaning. It referred to Greek reason. It talked about the power of God to reveal himself in the Jewish tradition. And that's what Jesus was. He was the revelation of God. He was light and life to the world. And so Jesus is termed the word. He's the incarnate word. And if you look at Hebrews 1, if you just go to the beginning of Hebrews, it says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. In the verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you see how much that word actually appears in the Bible, the word, word? How significant that is. So again, I'm going to restate the point. To live by faith is to act as if a pre-existent, all-powerful creator God exists and we can know him through this word. How would you live your life if you actually believed that? That alone, God for sure exists. He is preexistent. He was before everything that existed that we know. Just always existed. He created everything that existed. And we can know him through this word. John Piper said this. He said, faith depends on what God is like, not what we are like. The more we know what God is like, the more conformed to his greatness will be your faith. So what he's saying there is, faith, like if you want 
strong faith. If faith is something that you care about, the way to get strong faith is not to think about your faith. Right? It's not to be like, oh, I want to have, I want to have really good faith, so I'm going to meditate or I'm going to you know, discipline myself in faith just to have faith. You cannot will faith to happen. Right? Faith itself is a gift from God. But to grow our faith, like to cult- cultivating your faith has really nothing to do with your faith. It has everything to do with what you think about God. Just looking at God more will give you greater faith because you will know him more, because you will understand him more, because you will see him more, and subsequently you will trust him more. The more you see the greatness of God, the more you can sit here in the pew, sing a song, and believe what you're singing, the more faith you have. Right? The more you go into Scripture and you read and you learn about who God is and you see the nature of his character and you see how beautiful he is and how amazing he is and how powerful he is, that is what affects your faith. That is what gives you great faith. Believing that God is great. I don't want to do a whole thing about this. I'm just going to say you need the word. Okay? If life is a marathon, then the word is oxygen. Okay, so you can have, you know, the best shoes, right? And you can have great clothes and you can have a great Bluetooth, you know, whatever, ear pods. Like you can have all the best stuff, the best gear, right? A good water bottle, even a good running group, right? Like you can have great accountability and you can have an app and you can have all that kind of stuff. But it doesn't matter if you don't have oxygen. You will not only not be a great runner, you will not be alive. You will not have a pulse. And so it is that fundamental living by faith, you know, essential, a prerequisite really to live in faith is to trust that God exists and that you can know him through the word Point two I'll give you before we move on in the text. Living by faith is acting as if God's commendation is the only one that matters. Living by faith is acting as if God's commendation, or approval is another way to think of it, is the only one that matters. Let's read here, verse four. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting the gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Verse 6, And without faith, it is impossible to please him, For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So there's three examples given here, right, to illustrate what faith looks like, what a life of faith looks like. There's Abel, there's Enoch, and then there's Noah. Right? The story of Abel, Genesis 4, 
If you guys remember Cain and Abel, right? Abel was responsible for tending the flocks. Cain was responsible for working the ground. So plants, basically Cain, Abel, animals. Now the sacrifices that were given, Abel gave animal sacrifices. Cain gave plant sacrifices. Abel was commended and Cain was not. The Bible doesn't explicitly say in Genesis why Abel was commended and Cain was not, nor does the author of Hebrews say so here. But it's clear that Abel was commended and Cain was not commended. Now, why? Now, there are some clues that we can get from the Old Testament. For example, uh, you know, Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So God instituted this sacrificial system in the Old Testament. They had to kill the animal. There has to be shedding of blood to cover over their sins. So Abel, by adhering to that system, was saying, God, I trust in you for my forgiveness and my salvation. He simply obeyed God. He took God at his word. God institutes that system, and Abel says, okay, I get it, and I'm going to do it. Now, Cain, on the other hand, he was jealous of Abel. Now, why would he be jealous? Yeah, well, Cain's older, right? He's working the ground. And this is partly speculative, right? But when I read the text, I see that Cain cares more about the quality of his offering than he does about what God wants, what God says he wants. Because Cain's mad that his offering comes from the ground. There, now, there's other harvest offerings, there are grain offerings and things. It was not like that was bad, but the blood offering was necessary to cover sin. And Cain didn't want to do that. The Bible also makes it clear that Cain knew what he was supposed to do. It's not like this was a secret, right? And God was like, you're, you know, like, like colder, <laughs> you know, colder, colder, oh, warmer. Oh, yeah, you're getting that chicken warmer. You know, it's like, it wasn't like that, right? Like God made clear what was supposed to happen. It's clear that Cain knew what was supposed to happen, and yet he didn't want to do it, right? He cared more about what he was giving than about whom he was giving to. Now, Enoch, we don't really know much about Enoch. Genesis 5, there's like this little line. Basically, that says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That's it. Basically, Enoch, you know, he lived, he had some kids. When he was 365 years old, he just walked with God, and then he just disappeared. Now, Noah, the story of Noah, most of us know, right? There was a flood coming. There had never been a flood on the earth. God says there's going to be a flood. Noah listens to God. He believes God. He takes God at his word. And then he builds an ark, and everybody's, like, laughing at him. Like, why the heck are you building an ark? It's, like, sunny. You know, like, why are you doing that? He's ridiculed. And then the floods come, and Noah and his family are saved, and everybody else, the Bible says, is condemned. Two important theological truths, and then I'm going to break down the, the main point, okay? So two important theological truths before we move on. Without faith... It is impossible to be commended by God. Without faith, it is impossible to be commended by God. The second one. With faith, it is impossible to be condemned by God. So without faith, you cannot be commended. But with faith, you cannot be condemned because it counts on God's righteousness, not our righteousness. Now, 
I said, living by faith is acting as if God's commendation or approval is the only one that matters. Now, for us as Christians, we get that through Christ. But I'm going to put it a different way. Okay, living by faith is acting as if obedience matters more than outcomes. Now, here's the evidence from the passage, okay? Abel and Enoch have opposite outcomes. Because do you know what happens to them? Abel's obedience to be faithful led him to becoming the first victim of murder in history. He was murdered by his brother, and he died. And the the passage specifically points to that. Though he died, he still speaks. And then look what it says about Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. Because Enoch was the first person to not die. Enoch didn't die. Abel's faith led him to be murdered and the first one to die in Scripture. And Enoch's faith led him to not die. And yet they are both equally commended. Because obedience is the only thing that matters. The outcome doesn't matter. Now, why is it important that we get that? We tend to spend a lot of time and energy considering outcomes and very little considering obedience. Right? We tend to think of life, a life of faith as a series of choices between door one and door two, right? Door A and door B. Like every time we have a decision, that's kind of how we think of it. We want to look at, uh, you know, we want our jobs to look a certain way, our kids to be a certain way, our relationships to operate a certain way. You know, kind of the things that we do, we want it to look a certain way. And then we think, how can I make it the way that I want it to be? And then we think about that. Okay, what would I have to do? You know, how much money would I have to make? How much time would I need to get? You know, what would have to happen here for me to maneuver, to get to the place that I want to get to in life. That's an outcome. And we think when we pray and we ask God stuff, right? it's like, God, tell me the right thing to do. That's kind of what we think, right? It's kind of how we pray. God, what is the right thing that you want me to do? What is, of these things, like which one can I buy? Which job should I take? Which person should I be with? You know, how does it, tell me the right, tell me the right thing. Tell me the right way. But in truth, the parameters for our decision-making are far more important than the results of our decisions. In other words, the way we make a decision matters far more than what decision we make. Like, if you, with a clean conscience, can say, I am making this decision in faith as I pursue obedience, as I pursue obedience to God, that is far more meaningful than to say, this is the right thing. This is the thing that God wants me to do. This job, this purchase, this house, this person. Making an uncertain decision while trusting God is far more meaningful than making a certain decision in God's place. Because that's kind of what we do. And like, I'm, not, I'm not saying you can never be certain about something. Because sure, there are times when God gives us this sense. 
And by the way, when someone tells me something like that, like, ah, this is what God wants me to do. This is what I feel like God wants me to do. This is the decision he wants me to make. I'm far more, like, I'm far less skeptical if I know that that person is, like, in the word every day and, like, really spends time in prayer and, like, regularly attend. You know, like, they're doing all the things that makes me believe they are really close to God because I think those are more the times when we get those senses. When that's not the case, but we just feel like, oh, yeah, God's just kind of, like, giving me something. Oftentimes, I'm just being honest with you, oftentimes we're just putting words in God's mouth. Because it's not coming from here. Right? There aren't many things here that tell you which outcomes you should go after. Most of what's in the Bible is like, your circumstance doesn't matter. That's what Paul says, right? Do you know when Paul, the Apostle Paul, by the way, do you know when he was really certain about his life? Like he knew he was doing the right thing. It's before he met Jesus. Right? He was like, man... You know, I'm, I'm, a, you know, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm circumcised on the eighth day. Like, I was raised in the Pharisaic tradition. Gamaliel was my mentor. You know, my career path is set. I'm, raising, I'm rising the ranks in kind of the Jewish tradition. Like, I know what's going on, and I know that this sect, this people, they call themselves, you know, part of, part of like, God's people, but they're not. This new sect, right? These Christians, they are, these are bad people. We need to persecute them. In fact, we need to murder them. I'm going to sit back, I'm going to watch, and I'm going to approve of that. He was very certain about his life, the path of his life. Do you know when he became super uncertain about his life? When he's on the road to Damascus, and Jesus appears to him and says, why are you persecuting me? Then he's like, dude, what have I been doing with my life? Because like, everything I thought was right is wrong. And then he was like, I don't know, like, I want to go to Asia, but God says I can't go to Asia. You know, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to do this. Like, I'm trying to go on these missionary journeys. I just got shipwrecked again. Like, people are persecuting. I'm stuck in Athens. I don't know what to do here. I'm stuck in Athens. I'm just going to preach the gospel, and then a bunch of people come to Christ in Athens. Like, that's how Paul lived his life. He wasn't trying to get somewhere. I mean, he had plans. I'm not saying we can't make plans. But he was thinking day to day about how can I be obedient to God today where I'm at? Not be desperate to get somewhere else. Not be desperate to get into some other situation. Just where I am right now. And that led Paul to say stuff like, I don't care if I die. You know, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Stuff like, man, I'm in prison but that's better for the gospel. Stuff like, I know the secret of being content in any situation. I know what it is to have plenty. I know what it is to be in need. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Obsessing about outcomes, that's a way to be very anxious, eventually depressed, and just constantly, like, you cannot turn this off because you're, you're thinking about everything that could happen down the line. But pursuing obedience, right? Being able to just turn it all off and say, you know, what What would God have me do today? I know it sound, that sounds kind of cliche, but, like, we don't really do that. Let's be honest, right? Like you don't go to work and think, how can I be obedient to God today? You're kind of just thinking, well, I want to get through the day. You know, I just want to survive. What am I getting for lunch? You know, what am I going to do after? Like, that's kind of the way that we think. 
And then we think about all these things. What if I get, what's my boss going to think? What's this person going to, what's that person going to think? Oh, no, this happened, that happened. Am I going to have enough money? Like, you're just thinking about everything. And imagine the freedom of just reducing all of that down to just, how can I be obedient today? That's That's joy. That's freedom. That's a life of faith. Living my faith is acting as if. There is one preexistent, all-powerful creator God, and we know him by this word. And acting as if obedience to God is worth more than any particular outcome. Now let's read on in this passage. It's going to talk about Abraham. Verse 8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Because it talks about Abraham, right? And Abraham was called when he was 75. Okay, so he was already old and his name was Abram, right? And he was called to go out to this land. And if you remember in Genesis 12, God gives him this call. He says, I'm going to make you into a nation. I'm going to make you into a people. I'm going to make your name great. All the families on earth are going to be blessed through you. And at age, (laughs) before age 100, for 25 years, starting from age 75, he didn't receive that promise, Right? Like, I know some of us think we're old, right? Like, we're like, oh, man, I'm getting so old. You ever say that? Like, oh, I'm getting old. I feel that sometimes. Like, oh, you know, my back or something. Like, I mean, Abraham didn't even, he didn't even start till he was 75. He doesn't appear in Scripture until he's 75 years old. And then by 100, 25 years later, like, basically nothing's happened. The promise hasn't even begun to be fulfilled yet. He's just been wandering around. And yet, it's so funny, like verse 12 says, therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, because he was old, were born the descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Isn't that crazy? Now verse 13, this is going to be our last section. It says, these all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For, the, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Here's our third point. Okay, living by faith is acting as if this world is not home. 
these people didn't just live in faith. They died in faith. Right? They, they lived their entire lives on the promises of God, and when they died, those promises weren't fulfilled. They didn't completely receive it. Like, Abraham, by age 100, had one kid. God said, your, your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky, like the sand on the seashore. And when he was 100 years old, he had one kid, Isaac. That's it. The one child of promise. He had another illegitimate kid that he probably shouldn't have had. You know, with Hagar and his, like, servant, like they had this whole episode. And he just had the one kid of promise. And then, you know, some years later, God tells him to sacrifice that kid. Abraham, in his entire life, didn't even reside. He never became a permanent resident in the land that was promised to him. All that remained of him, because all he did basically throughout his life was he wandered. And he went from place to place. And he accumulated kind of, you know, people and stuff. And he kind of became something. But he never received the promised land. He never went in there and lived there. So when he died, all that remained of him, all that was left on earth to remember Abraham were his descendants and memorials of faithfulness that he had made to God throughout the land. What a, what a beautiful life. Right? Like, that's kind of what I, like, I hope, like, all that's left is just, like, my kids and my family and, like, memorials to God. Right? Not some, not some legacy to my name. Living by faith means never trying to make this home. Now, when he says, he says, 14, right? For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. So Abraham was seeking a homeland. But then what he makes clear is if they had been thinking of that land from which they had come, right? If they had thought about the land they were like born in or something. You know, like if I thought about the city I was born in. I was born in Artesia. I don't know why. I would, I would never. <laughs> but let's say, I was like, that's my homeland. I have to go back. Or even let's say, you know, my parents are from Korea, right? So I'm like, oh, Korea is like the homeland, you know, the motherland. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is, no, they weren't thinking about someplace on earth. Because if Abram if Abraham thought, oh, you know, whatever, the Chaldea, I'm going to go back to where I came from. Like if he thought that was his homeland, he could have went back there. But he wasn't looking for that. Nor was he thinking even about the land of Canaan. His heart longed for a different home, one that's not on this earth, one that God is building for us, the heavenly country, right? The city whose foundations God himself makes. The home that your heart longs for is not this one. It's not here. Your house or your dream or your family or your work here will always remain unfinished. It will be unfinished when you die. It won't be done. You won't have made it. You won't have arrived. It will still be a work in progress. Now that sounds, in some senses, 
like bad. But let me tell you why it's not. Okay? Accepting the idea of the unfinished nature of our lives here on earth is a gift. Like to know for certain that if you live for God, the purpose you live for will outlive you. That's, that's a gift. That the legacy you leave behind will be grounded in a glory that far outweighs your own, what you could accomplish. That's a gift. To know for certain that there's always more to learn and deeper enjoyment to discover for eternity. That's, that's a gift. That's better than just trying to get stuff and, and make a home here. Let me ask you, church, which country are you living for? Which homeland does your heart long for? Do you claim citizenship of? Okay, let's, let's do a quick heart check. Do you check in with heaven every day or with earth every day? Like, is your truth, your reality, the word, or is it like the news? Whether that's like the news news or online news or social media news, you know, social news. Like, what is, where do you check in? Where does your heart check in every day? Does your life reflect the values of heaven or the values of earth. Like when people see you, do they think that's a citizen of earth? Or they, do they think if they're Christian, that's a citizen of heaven? Or if they're not Christian, like, I don't know who, I don't know where that person belongs, but they don't belong here. Do you invest in the growth of the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven or your kingdom on earth? Where do you invest your money, your time, your effort, your passion, your stress, your planning, your hope? Where is all of that invested? And here's one final heart check question. This is an important one. When you think about rest, ultimately, when you think about rest, do you long for rest with Christ or from Christ? Because really, those are the only two ways to think about rest. Because either Christ is essential to your rest, or he is non-essential to your rest, in which case you don't really want Christ. Because he can only be essential to the idea of your rest. Like, I know that my heart can only rest in Christ, or you don't actually want Christ. Because he never exists as, like, furniture in our heart. No, that's not the way that Christ functions, not real Jesus, right? He either has all of it or he has none of it, and we don't actually want him there. Now, if you are living, if your homeland is heaven, like that's, that's really where you're at. That's what you believe. That's what you want, and that's how you're living. If you're living so that all that will remain here after you die are descendants and tents and memorials to the faithfulness of God then my encouragement is, man, press on in faith. Right? Keep running the race. Keep your eyes on the prize. And I want to assure you of this, that the reward that awaits will far outweigh whatever costs must be paid here. Far outweigh. It's not two marshmallows. 
You know, it's a, it's a marshmallow machine <laughs> run by the marshmallow man. Like, it's just all, it's all of it, right? It's the whole thing. And, and if you don't like marshmallows, it's not marshmallows. I don't really like marshmallows. It's whatever, right? Like, the joy that's contained there, the joy we will experience when we can walk to Jesus at the end of life and be like, man, I'm happy to be going home. To live life that way, I'm telling you, that satisfaction is far greater like, we are giving up so much more if, we, if that's not the way that we live. And I would just say, if your heart has drifted to this country as home and this city and this earth, like this place, if you have been living not as a wanderer in this world, but as a permanent resident in the world to make a home here, to rest here, to reap reward here, let me just, I'm just going to remind you, I don't want you to be driven by guilt, because that's not, that's not what I, nor God, nor, you know, that's not the point of this, right? I just want to remind you, this isn't home. It's not going to satisfy you. I know to this point it hasn't, right? If, if that's what you've been doing, like, I don't even need to say it, but I'll say it anyway. It's kind of empty, you just feel like, what's, like, what is the point of this, ultimately? And let me assure you, you are giving up way more than you think you're getting. The world offers no bargains. Right? Money, power, comfort, glory here, it's not worth nearly as much as it takes to attain. Right? Because when you get it, you feel empty. And then you realize, I've given up so much for this. And then I finally got it, and it wasn't even worth it. And look, I know I'm preaching kind of hard right now. The reason is, as soon as you leave here, the world preaches at you ten times as hard. Right? Ten times as hard constantly that, and, and what they preach is essentially this, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You know, live your life. Don't think about tomorrow. Don't think about the guy who's coming back with two marshmallows. You know, don't, don't think about that. Just be right now. Try to just capture as much, you know, life as you can because that's all there is. There is nothing tomorrow. And, you know, I've said this many times, but it's leading to loneliness and depression and suicide and overdose and yet, we just keep doing it. And I would say, that's, that's faith, but it's the wrong faith. Put your faith in Christ. Every sacrifice we make for Christ, every sacrifice you make for Christ, every sacrifice you've made for Christ in your life, okay, God remembers. Everything you've done, little steps of faith, God remembers. God has noted it. It is written down, and it will be repaid 10, 20, 50-fold in the satisfaction we feel now and in the reward that awaits us later. I'm going to close with just a couple application points. I'm going to bring up something I talked about last week at the members' meeting, but Lent starts next Wednesday. So not this Wednesday, but the following Wednesday, February 26th. And I gave this challenge for those of you who are there 
uh, the members. I'm going to restate it here as a practical challenge to think about stepping into the life of faith. Okay? And I, I said, give, pray, love. I'm really disappointed in myself for using that. But because um, it sounds like eat, pray, love. And it helps you just remember it. But that's essentially three things. Right? Give in faith. The challenge I gave to the members was, I'll, I'll just say it again. I, I mean, this is just a challenge. It's obviously not something you have to do, but a way to step into your faith. Um, give 10% of your gross income throughout Lent, just every week. Right? Pray in faith. That's give. Pray in faith. Pray every day for the 40 days of Lent for one person or family who doesn't know Jesus. Love in faith. And the way to love in faith is invite that person or that family, or really doesn't necessarily have to be that person or family, um, to our church for Easter where we're going to have, we're going to try to have more of a, know how to say it exactly. I'll just, for lack of a better term, I'll just say a seeker-friendly service. And I'd say, you know, a lot of times, I, I shared this last week, right? Like, I didn't like doing stuff like this because I felt like, oh, I don't want to be, like, you know, pushy or something. The thing is, though, obviously, no, no, none of you guys has to do it. You know, it's all, it's up to you, right? But the thing is, when we don't have something, right? Like, when, because your outcomes, right, the outcomes you care about, they're going to change all the time. Right, how much money you want to make, what you want to buy, where you want to live, you know, whatever. That stuff, it all changes all the time. Right? It's like constantly fluctuating. And then you want to go this way, and then you want to go that way, and you want to go that way. And we just live these like crazy lives. And I've discovered that when we really don't, if, if we're Christian, like if you, if God is doing something in your heart, you know that God owns your heart. You know you're Christian. And you don't pursue this kind of faith you're not happy because this is the progress you care about this is what what matters to know god to feel close to god to feel close to god's people and to feel like you are doing something in the world for God's name. That's the life of faith. I'm just going to close with this. It is, um, you know, it's Hebrews 12, which is a very known passage. It's not going to be up there, but I'm just going to read it. And, um, but it, it means much more in context of chapter 11. And it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded By so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, let's let's resolve to look to Jesus and run that race together. Let's pray. God, we 
we thank you so much that you love us too much. To allow us to live lives devoid of faith. Devoid of faith in you, God. We know it's hard. I mean, the world is constantly bombarding us with messages to the contrary to what you say, God. That that there is no God. That we are gods. That we determine the fate of our lives. We are important and our glory is what really matters. That success in life is determined by how much money we have and where we live and who we hang out with and how cool we are and how good we look. And the world is constantly just beating us down with this message, God. And we thank you that you love us too much. allow that message to penetrate our hearts there's only one God it's you you are revealed through your word there's only one metric of success and it's obedience that's, that's the life of faith God and, and this world God this broken world this is not home there's a place that we are passing through just as your son did before us, became flesh, died in our place, who rose from the dead, and through whom we can walk this life for the sake not of ourselves having a home, but to love those who are broken and who are in need, to share the message of Christ with those who need it, to make much of you, God, for you are worthy to be made much of. to finally in the end when we see you face to face God to be overjoyed at the prospect of spending eternity eternal rest and peace and joy and satisfaction with you God help us to taste and glimpse of that glory every day and help our eyes to be fixed on you as we pursue that end trust it to you. We thank you so much.